All right, as you can tell with the uh, mountains that are behind me, we are in our third phase in the book of Genesis. And uh, we began a few weeks, actually a couple months ago with, uh, in September with looking at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 because we're th- going throughout the entire book. And we looked at growth and creation, and green was a symbol of that. And then after that, we shifted to our second phase, which was symbolized with the color yellow, looking at sin and alienation, but also goodness and God's restoration. We saw that in Genesis chapter 3 and 4. And now we make the shift to Noah and the flood, and that is the color blue. And that's where we're at this morning. And it was, it was delightful for me to uh, watch uh, Casey Van Winkle just kind of share about his passion for local outreach. And also just as I was watching him, just thinking about his family, that his parents, Bob and Christy Van Winkle, they attend here and to see their faith being passed down to Casey and his siblings. And then also Casey and his wife, Caitlin, they're passing down their faith to their son, Sully. And just to see that, and it reminds me of last week as we talked about from Genesis chapter 5, that this man named Enoch, in Genesis chapter 5, his epitaph read as someone who had close fellowship with God. He was known for that. And he left a lasting legacy. And that legacy was passed down to his, his son, Methuselah. If you know Methuselah, probably the oldest man to ever, ever to live. But then Methuselah passed down his faith to his son, Noah. And that's where we pick it up this morning, is the story of Noah, in many ways, is this generational passing of the faith. And, and wherever you're at this morning, maybe you're a person where that faith has been passed on, or perhaps you're starting something new, that you're the first person in your family to walk closely with God and to see that through the generations after you is going to be a beautiful thing. So if you have a Bible, I invite invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to start with the story of Noah in verse 5 of chapter 6. And this morning, I'm going to be covering four chapters, 6, 7, 8, and 9, which is the story of Noah. So we're going to be here for a long time. Just kidding. I know a lot of you are Vikings game. Got to be done by noon. Um, but we're going to look at the story of Noah and the flood, and it's probably one of the most popular uh, stories in the Bible. Probably one of the, a lot of us learn this, this story from a, a Sunday school lesson. And this morning, I'm going to talk about this and, and really walk us through and take out passages of 6, 7, 8, and 9. I wish I could read all of them, but I can't. And put together some uh, observations. Before we do that, let me pray for us. Father God, we give thanks for your word and God, as a, as a community collectively, and also for us individually, I pray that you would speak to us. God, that no matter where we're at here this morning, that we would receive a word from you, encouragement, guidance, a teaching. And God, whatever is going through my mind or whatever is, is in my life right now, I, I pray that you would just have freedom to work in inside me and just to speak through me. That my words would be your words. In Christ's name we pray. Everybody said... Amen. All right, chapter 6, verse 5. And if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along perhaps on your iPhone or the slides behind me. The Lord observed the extent of human weakness on the earth. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he ever made them and put them on earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds in the sky, even the birds. I am sorry I ever made them. But verse 8, this is an important but this morning. But Noah found favor with the Lord. 
Enoch probably didn't know this, but his legacy of faith saved the human race. The, the fact that he walked closely with God and was passed down to his grandson Noah um, made it possible for the human race to, to survive because God was disgusted, absolutely disgusted with what was going on and how perverse it was. And sometimes we come to stories like this and we wonder. Uh, I had a person that actually stopped by my office this past week and was asking the question that we come to these stories like Noah and the flood, we come to these stories like Abel and Cain, we come to these stories like Adam and Eve. Are they really true? Did this really happen? And we look to the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3.16, and Paul tells us, the Bible tells us that these words, these stories, the very words of God, and they're trustworthy. So yes, they are reliable, they are true. But also, these stories are here to instruct us and to guide us and to speak to us in our lives. So we come to the story of Noah and the flood. I think there's three lessons that you and I can gain from this story this morning. I'd like to walk through that. First of all, if you have an insert and you have some fill in the blanks, you can follow along with me. The first one is that, the first lesson is that humanity caused God's judgment. It wasn't as if this angry God is just kind of sitting and watching what's, what's going on and the smallest thing provoked him. And, he, and he's like, okay, I'm going to fry him. Because some of us have that image of God. No, no, no. It was so bad. In fact, it says in verse 5, it was totally evil. I'm not sure how that compares to today's culture, but back then it was totally evil to the point that God was sorry that he ever made the human race. So as, as a result, humanity, people, caused God's judgment. In a sense, we forced his hand as we read about this. Because God had high, high hopes for humanity. God had this dream that we see in Genesis chapter 1 through 4, he had this dream that he would actually do life with people. He would have partnership. He would walk alongside with them and, and do life together, together with them. He had high hopes. But something went wrong. The world went wrong. And it broke his heart. He had high hopes. I was watching an inter- interview this past week of, uh, from a woman who was newly married. Her husband died within the first year of their marriage. And she said, you know what? It is so heart-wrenching for me and it's so heartbreaking because we had such high hopes for our life together. We had these high expectations of what we would do together. We had plans. We were going to do trips. And my heart is broken. It's, it's the same way with God is that he had such high hopes and the world went wrong. These people that were living at that time, resisted God. Instead of being a partner with God, instead of doing life with God, they wanted to be God-like. They wanted to be the center of their universe. They didn't want any rules. They didn't want any, any challenges. They wanted to kind of do life on their own. As a result, they resisted God and turned away from Him. That's probably best explained in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. This is written later on, centuries later after Genesis. But this gives you an idea of God's intent and what he wanted to do with people and then what happened. This is God speaking. I thought to myself, I would love to treat you as my own children. I want nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, this beautiful world. I wanted to give it to you. The funnest possessions in the world. I look forward to your calling me Father. If you have a Bible this morning, just underline that phrase. I look forward to your calling me Father, and I want you never to turn from me. But God's people refused this dream. They turned away from this dream and plan that, and God had envisioned. Instead, it says this, But you have been unfaithful to me, you people of Israel. 
You have been, a, been a, like a faithless wife who leaves her husband or a faithless husband who leaves his wife. And this, high, this, this heartbreak of high hopes that God had for his people is the framework and setting of the flood. We need to know that. That's the setting. God does not act arbitrarily. He doesn't come out of nowhere and all of a sudden just send the flood because that's the thing he does. There's a fracture. And the fracture comes through chapter 6. We see this. In fact, in 22 verses in chapter 6, seven of them talk about God destroying. For example, in verse 7, I will blot out. Verse 13, I will destroy. Uh, and then verse 17, I will bring a flood to destroy. i got to be honest with you, this past week, this has been a really hard week for me. Because I, I come across these kind of passages, and realistically, I don't want to think about God that way. I don't think you do either. And, and, and sometimes we want to kind of skirt around these passages and go to the other ones that are more positive and more happy. But the nice thing about doing a book study is that you're confronted with passages perhaps you're uncomfortable with. And what you might see here with God may make you uncomfortable, which is probably good, because sin bothers God. Sin bothers God. If there's anything that in this first lesson of humanity caused God's judgment is that God takes sin very seriously. And his plan for creation, his plan for the world, his plan for humanity was being overwrought by evil and sin. And God was not going to allow evil and sin to have the last word. We come to this passage, though, and we read about God, and we label him as cruel. We must realize that the seriousness of sin. Moving down to verse 17 of chapter 6. Look, I am about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat. You and your wife and your sons and their wives bring a pair of every kind of animal, male and female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, except for cats. And every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground. I just like how the writer always includes that verb, scurries. What is that? You know, what is that? Is that like snakes or squirrels or gophers? I'm not sure. Will come to you to be kept alive and be sure to take on board enough food and Mountain Dew for your family and for all the animals. So God, Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. If there's anything you see here, first of all, is God, God cares about creation. Yeah, he's going to bring a flood, but he's going he's to start a new project. We can see this. He's going to start over. But also what we see here too is that in the midst of this judgment is that Noah is absolutely obedient. And, and we've seen this in a couple of movies. We've seen this with Steve Carell's portrayal of Noah and also Russell Crowe's portrayal of Noah. And one of the things that we see in both those movies that's true right here as well is that Noah was obedient. It's not, it's not raining yet. And this took years to build this boat and he was faithful. He was obedient. Now moving to chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Let's take a look at when the flood comes here. When Noah was a young 600 years old, on the 17th day of the month, the second month, excuse me, all the underground waters erupted from the earth. Kind of like this. And that's probably what it looked like. 
as the underground waters came out of the earth, erupted from the earth. You know what, by the way, I bet Noah is in heaven saying, wow, Russell Crowe portrays me. That's pretty cool. That's a compliment. Anyways, that very day, Noah had gone into the boat with his wife and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, and their wives with them in the boat. There were every pairs of every kind of animal, domestic and wild, large and small, along with birds of every kind. Two by two they came into the boat, representing every living thing that breathes, and male and female of each kind entered just as God had commanded Noah. And the Lord closed the door behind them. For 40 days the floodwaters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting the boat high above the earth. You've taken notes this morning. The word 40 is a very important number and also meaning in the Bible. 40 represents hope. So when we read about 40 days, 40 nights, we know that God is going to do something hopeful through this. That, that sin and evil will not have the last word. Sin and evil will not have the last word. All right, the next one, next lesson that we can uh, glean from this story is that humanity broke God's heart. Humanity broke God's heart. You look at chapter uh, 6, verse 6. In the New Living Translation, it reads, it broke God's heart. That verse should just leap off the page for you. It broke God's heart. And the Hebrew word for broke God's heart, it's in some translations, it's grieved, is asav. And asav means broke or grieved, but get this. It's the same word that's used when God says to Eve, your pain will increase in childbirth. It's the same word as that pain. So there's sort of an irony here that 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 uh, as Eve gives birth uh, to her children, is that God is ending uh, the lives of his children. It has that connection, a sob, and it breaks his heart. He grieves. He's sad. And there's an emotional importance here, too, is that the evil heart of humanity that we read in verse 5 breaks the heart of God. This is a heart-to-heart circumstance. What does God do to bring people to obedience and creation and creation to obedience again is to live out his dreams and expectations. He brings the flood, but, but not by tyranny, not by cruelness. Rather, it's done through anguish and grief. A God who enters in to the pain and grief of the world. This is no absence de- absent deity. This is no God from afar who simply sends the flood and is not entering into this. He is grieving. It breaks his heart. His children are going to die. It's not a story about a world assaulted and a God who stands remote. It's about a God uh, who hurts and endures because of and, and, and for the sake of a wayward creation. And very much it's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus comes and not, not only does he asav, not only does he, his heart is broken for humanity, but also he goes beyond that. He gives his life. He dies on the cross to bring about a new project, a new beginning for God. Well-known atheist Christopher Hitchens, who passed away some time ago, said God, the God of Christianity was a God he couldn't believe in because that God was cold and cruel, that he did not care for his people at all, and that he would just kill them. Hitchens argued that the God of Christianity possessed no heartfelt feelings at all, but chapter 6, verse 6 says he does. He sobs. It breaks his heart. And what's, what's uh, noteworthy about this is too, is as Genesis is being written, um, there's other nations in the area, Egypt, in Assyria, 
and Samaria. And their, their spiritual um, uh, life, their, their belief of God, of the gods, was that the gods were angry. And that if you did the smallest thing, if you did the smallest thing to provoke them, you would be toast. And what's unique and, and different about this God, the God of Christianity, the God of the Israelites, is that this is a God who actually cares. He feels. You would not find that anywhere in that day. A God who feels, who enters into this world and hurts with us. That it pains him. It broke his heart. It's absolutely astounding. Well, not only did humanity cause God's judgment, but, and, and also that it, it broke God's heart, but also humanity found another chance. I was having coffee this past week with another pastor, and we were just talking about uh, leading churches and uh, just the joy and privilege of being a pastor. And it was so refreshing to me because he and I share a similar philosophy that when it comes to leading the church and being a pastor, really it comes down to loving people. That sounds, I know, really complex. But, you know, we can have projects, we can have initiatives, we can have um, programs. But when it comes down to being a pastor, he and I share this, this vision of, of being a pastor who loves people. And I think in a similar way, when it comes to God, we see a God who not only loves people, but also that he gives them another chance. And that's the third lesson we find, is that humanity found a second chance. They found a second chance. He gives them an opportunity. And in a sense, I think it's where God graciously comes alongside Noah and his family and this ark that's out there for 40 days, and he says, okay, let's try this again. Okay, let's try this again. And this is a theme that we've seen already in Genesis, and it's a theme that we're going to see over and over because God makes a promise to humanity, and humanity is to enter into this covenant. They fail him, they turn away from him and leave him and think they can do life on their own, but they return back and God says to him over and over, okay, let's try this again. And we see this right here in the story of Noah and the ark. Let's turn to chapter 8, verses 15 through 19. And God said to Noah, leave the boat, all of you, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, and the small animals that scurry along the ground so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. So Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives left the boat, and all the large animals and small animals and birds came out of the boat, pair by pair. So we see right here is God's beginning again. He is restoring earth. He is going to start a new project. He's saying to humanity, and he's saying to creation, let's try this again. Okay, let's try this again. Chapter 9, moving ahead, verses 8 through 13. Then God told Noah and his sons, and this is, this is an important part of the story right here. I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants. And with all the animals that were on the boat with you. Animals matter to God. God makes a covenant not only with Noah and his descendants, but also with the animals, the created world. God takes delight in birds. He takes delight in animals. This is very interesting. He makes a covenant with them. The birds and livestock and all the wild animals. Yes, every living creature on earth. I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. And we need to know that. 
there again will a flood destroy the earth. So when it comes to natural means, in chapter 8 it talks about that as well. God makes a promise. He says, never again will I use natural means to kill people. Then God said, I am giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is a sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. Let's take a look at that picture. It's a rainbow. And there's something that um, I think in a sense universal, whoever you talk to, whatever language, whatever culture, whatever part of the world, that when you see a rainbow, there's something about it. There's nothing like it. And it reminds us of, it starts right here, of God's covenant with Noah. That never again will I destroy the earth with floodwaters or by natural means. And also, it's a covenant that, okay, let's try this again. Let's try this again. One scholar also adds on to this, and I had never heard this before, is that the sign of the bow, it's kind of like a bow and arrow, but there's no arrow. It's an unarmed bow. And that this bow prevails. Sin does not. If you jump back into the Hebrew language, the dominant Hebrew word for sin is called missing the mark. It's a technical archery term. So this bow that we see in the rainbow is God prevailing over chaos, over evil, over sin, and that God says, I will have the last word. My kingdom will reign. It's absolutely beautiful. And we come across this, and it's a God who is no longer in pursuit of an enemy. It's a promise of God not to be, be provoked again to use a weapon, no matter how provocative his creation becomes, no matter how bad it becomes. And I have an acquaintance of mine that um, tells the story. And um, at one point, he had a very successful business, actually a top executive at Lawson Software in St. Paul, and had a very beautiful family. Everything seemed to be going really well for him, but he had a drinking problem. And he was on a hunting trip with his dad, and he was drunk, and he was driving. Came back from that hunting trip, and he crashed his truck, and it killed his dad. And he had severe injuries. He was laying in this hospital bed, realizing that his, his world had just collapsed. Everything, in a sense, had been destroyed. And it was in the midst of those ruins that he heard from God and placed his faith in God and Jesus Christ and said, I want to I live for Christ from this point forward. He told his family about this, and they were so happy because they had been praying for him for some time. And he sensed as he was laying in this hospital bed that God was saying to him, okay, let's try this again. Let's try this again. And not only that, but Lawson Software came alongside him as well and said, we're going to give you another chance. Let's try this again. And he came out of that hospital passionate about his work, passionate about his family, passionate about his faith, and in a few years became CEO of Lawson Software. And he has told his testimony, his story, to thousands of people. Always looking for an opportunity to talk about how God has changed his life. And very much, this is what we see in Noah and the flood, is a God who says to creation, okay, let's try this again. But not only that, it's a God who says also, I'm going to help you. Because if there's anything that we gather from this story, 
if there's anything that we glean from this this morning, and I'm not sure exactly where you're at this morning, but there's anything that, that you take away from the story is to know that we have a God who enters into our pain and our struggle. That this is not a God on the sidelines, but a God who is with us in our pain and struggle and enters in, that you do not go through it alone. This is a God who assaves, who his heart breaks, who weeps with you, who cries with you, who feels with you in this life. A God who comforts you in the midst of tragedy and loss. A God who comes alongside you to strengthen you, to take on the next challenge. And these words, these characteristics of God are echoed in Psalm 121. Now, it's one of my favorite psalms. And some of you who have been in hospitals or if I visited by your house, you know that I, I, I read this quite often. I love Psalm 121 because it reflects exactly what we're talking about. It's where the writer says, I look up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let you stumble. The one who cares for you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over you neither slumbers, numbers, neither slumbers or sleeps. The Lord himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as a protective shade. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon at night. The Lord keeps you and I from all harm. He watches over you. The Lord keeps watch as you come and go, both now and forever. Amen.